Hi there, Sports Movie Maniacs, and thanks for downloading the 101st dose of Scoring at the Movies Chit Chat. We've been talking about films with athletics in them for nearly four years, and we've spoiled the secrets of all the previous 100 flicks. So guess what we'll do today? Spoil. I'm the manager of a ball team who doesn't put much ketchup on his well-done steak, but has been known to have unbleep swearing come out of his mouth from time to time, or layered swearing post-production, Ryan Ellis. And here's the head angel, the leader of the Heavenly Choir Nine, Chris Gregorio. Now... I can't dispute anything you just said, Ryan, but because I am the leader of the Heavenly Host, you won't see me at all through this podcast. You'll only hear my voice talking to you from on high, A as different... you, you no doubt are right now. <laughs> as I always am, actually, in life, a podcast, <laughs> whole friendship. I am taller than you are, that's true. <laughs> it feels that way, anyway. Whole different change from the 1994 version, which we did, I think, our fourth ever podcast, where we see the angels plenty with all their zany antics. We don't really ever see what the angels are doing in this movie. We just hear what the people are saying that they're seeing. We saw only one instance of their angelic intervention when somebody on the pirates hit a can of corn pop fly kind of thing into the outfield and it hung up. And That's right. Okay, we saw right. like six Sonata <laughs> players all converging, looking confused about where's the ball, and then it dropped 30 seconds later. The improbably long time for that ball to appear in the outfield. Inside the park home run. Again, we never saw any angels. We just saw the ball not appear in the outfield when you expected it to, I guess. Yeah. What was the explanation there? Because at that point, I think we didn't yet know that angels were involved. Yeah, we didn't have Bridget apparently causing mass hysteria and panic in Pittsburgh at that point. (laughs) I guess it wasn't Gabriel. Do we ever learn who the guardian angel is of Guffy that's actually leading this kind of shenanigans on his behalf? Is it supposed to be their former players for some reason that care about this? You'd think it'd be former Pirates. Honus Wagner should probably be the guy who's supposed to be voiced by James Whitmore. He's the guy. So Brooks yes. from Shawshank Redemption, the old man who feeds the birds and then hangs himself. Actually, that would have been a fun touch if it turned out at the end they revealed that his guardian angel was, in fact, Honus Wagner looking out for the good of the Pirates franchise. Because as we talked about when we were watching this, at this point, 1950, Terrible team. the franchise was mired, right? So that would have made sense. That would have been a good touch. I think you should write a punch-up on the script 71 years later, send it in, (laughs) maybe point that out to them. Strongly worded letter. (laughs) I was looking at this today. The Pirates were terrible for many years. Most of their franchise's history, they haven't been a great team. The Pirates won the World Series here and there throughout the years, early part of the last century, about 100 years ago, that kind of thing. But then in the 70s, they went to the playoffs six times, and they won the series twice. Clemente was still alive when they won one of them, and then it was the 1979 We Are Family team. They haven't won it since. But then they also had that three straight years in the playoffs in the early 90s against the Reds, ironically, because the Reds are the team that walloped them in the first game of this movie. And they have a series against them that get walloped again in that first series we see midseason. But anyway, they lost the Reds, and then they lost the Braves those two years in the early 90s. And then in the 2013 to 2015 stretch... They got to the playoffs, but they had some good teams. The Garrett Cole years, 
Andrew McCutcheon, MVP years. So they're very streaky. Look on baseball reference. Eighth place in these days when there's only eight National League teams. Seventh place, sixth place, eight, eight, eight. And then when you had the National League East, which they were in that for a while, then it was the National League Central, which is what it's been since the mid-90s. So if you got four or five teams, I guess it's usually five or six, whatever. So they're fifth, they're fourth, they're sixth, they're fourth, they're fifth. First, first, first. And then fourth and third and yeah. second and fifth and fifth. They're a weird franchise. Maybe the streakiest franchise in the history of the game. And the team they beat to make the playoffs in this movie, I guess it was set in 1950, although it was shot in the early part of 51, March to May of 51, and it came out October 19th of 51. So maybe it is supposed to be 51. And if it is, that's the year the Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. But it's the Pirates that beat them in this movie in that same year then. We see plenty of newspaper clippings with very odd headlines in them. Anybody speaking or reading English would find the phraseology kind of weird, even in 1950. Little girl says she spies Seraph or something like that was one of Seraph, right. Seraphim, Nephilim, delineations of different types of angels, fine, whatever. But nobody's putting that in an article. But for all the newspaper articles we do see, I don't think we ever saw a date on any of them, right? It was always like a close-up on the particular article. So not sure when the movie was supposed to be set, aside from the fact that, like you said, it's somewhere at the beginning of the decade. I can't speak to 1950s era Pirates baseball, at least from a management ownership perspective of it. But from my lifetime following baseball, so the 90s onward, they're the teams that are always the last three teams in spending in baseball. The teams that you cited most recently, the McCutcheon years, the Garrett Cole years, you had Russell Martin on that team as well, at least for one of those years. They had great players that were still reasonably young and affordable, and then the second they became expensive, like in McCutcheon's case, they kept him around a little bit longer, but eventually blew up and didn't go anywhere anyway. But Garrett Cole, they shipped off to the Astros, they didn't pay Russell Martin, I think we should do a real deep dive into the last 10 years of Pirates roster construction. <laughs> this is what people want to hear, right? Well, I have been to a Pittsburgh Pirates ball game in the last 10 years. You keep telling me I have to go to PNC. It was great. Yeah. I have seen Fenway Park, and Bev and I didn't get a great view of it. We didn't have the best seats. It was also pretty cold. It was early May of 2014, the year after we got married. We this is in Pittsburgh, trip. not Boston. I'll get to that in a second. Oh, okay. So we saw Fenway Park. We saw Yankee Stadium. That was more impressive than Fenway, maybe because of the seats, and it was warmer that day. Exact same road trip. And then we also saw Cleveland's stadium. Was it Jacobs Field, or at least Jacob's it was Field. back then, I think, when we saw it, or Progressive, whatever it's called. That was okay. It'll it was always fine. be Jacobs in my heart. Okay, fine. But the Yankee Stadium you saw, that was new Yankee Stadium by yes. that point, right? The this old Yankee 14. was... New Yankee Early Stadium. Early aughts, it went mm-hmm. away, right? New Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Okay. Of course, we've been to the Sky Dome many, many times. All of us have. Excuse me, Ro- least, Rogers oh, Center. Let's yes, please excuse pay me. homage to the branding <laughs> rights of Rogers Corporation. So those are the places I've been to for baseball. Not that many, but Pittsburgh was beautiful. The view you have, at least where we were, probably the whole park. But when you're behind home plate like we were, it was so hot that day. That was, what year was that? Well, it wasn't the same road trip as the New York-Boston thing. You cited Sky Dome. Of course, we're from Toronto. This is our home stadium. As much as I have nostalgic love for Sky Dome, it is a concrete mm-hmm. mausoleum, essentially. There's nothing really aesthetically interesting about it. But anyway, my point is I would recommend of all the parks to see, and they may be a bad team again in 2022 and beyond. Oh, they will be. <laughs> At least right. this year, they will be. But if you can, go see a Pirates game because of those, what is that, five parks I mentioned? Wherever yeah. it is, that's the best one, I think, by a mile. It is on my bucket list to see still, yeah. Okay, so yar. In the outfield, and the infield for that matter. It's not just the outfield where these angels are getting involved. Pirates in the outfield? Yar! I guess they were going to call this movie Pirates in the Outfield, but didn't like the sound of that. And they are literal angels. The actual Angels franchise, by the way, I think we talked about this last week leading into this, or two weeks ago, 
that franchise came into being 10 years after this movie is set, or at least right. when this movie was made in 51. It came out in October 1951. MGM released it. It didn't lose money, but it wasn't a massive success either, which isn't really surprising. Sports movies don't often do that well at the box office. And in a nutshell, we talked about how they make the playoffs at the end of the year, the last game of the year. We don't see the postseason. doesn't matter. The movie's over. But in a nutshell, if the only way you can squeak into the postseason is with divine intervention, then you, sir, are cheating. <laughs> Angels are greater than PEDs. A bigger scandal than PEDs. <laughs> Much like in the remake in 1994. Well, one thing we do know about baseball in the 1940s, 1950s era is basically every player out there was probably on some sort of amphetamines. If not amphetamines, some sort of painkillers. The Yankees famously had all kinds of issues with their players and health and pumped them full of all kinds of drugs that we would probably consider PEDs or at least banned substances now. Nobody was trying to get an advantage over anybody else. There was just no stigma against it. So almost certainly all of the other teams the Pirates are playing against probably the Pirates themselves too, but all the other teams are on PEDs and they're defeated by Angels. So you're right, Angels are a bigger scandal, literally, than PEDs in this movie because of that. Nutshell was correct. How about that? (laughs) You said this movie was going to be called Pirates in the Outfield? That was a working title? I read that online, yeah. That makes no sense. Yeah, because there already are Pirates in the Outfield. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's, was it Brain Cannon, Mind Cannon, whatever? Head head Cannon, let's Head Cannon this a little bit. Maybe your Honus Wagner as guardian angel of Guffy McGovern, the manager of the Pirates, is closer to what the script originally was envisioning than you think, because what if all the angels were, in fact, not just Honus himself, but pirate greats from the 1910s, whatever, 1920s. So Pirates in the outfield would have literally meant, in addition to the actual players that are playing today, their deceased counterparts from years gone by that are now angels, so... That was the only way that makes any sense to me. Also, the remake, as bad as it is, and it yeah, isn't a very good movie. Oh, yeah, right, the beer, sorry. It's been however many minutes now, 10, 12 minutes. Getting dry, Ryan. What are you drinking over there? This is Crumpet's Best Pub Ale. Oh, why Crumpet's? Just because you liked it? Well, yeah, because there's a picture of the cat on the can, oh. and it said Crumpet's Best. The colors are not that far off the Pittsburgh Pirates colors, too. There you go. All right. Go ahead and sip. <laughs> I thought it was a cute can, so I <laughs> What that whistle? You didn't have a beer for a week or two there, or an episode or two there, so I wasn't sure. Back in the saddle. If it really mattered if I introduced the beer, but there you have the beer there. And I, of course, have my Canadian Club and I have Pepsi. So I forget what that thought was a second ago, but I will do the Rotten Tomatoes numbers. 83% of critics back then said it's a good film. Only six reviews. One, two, three, four, five, six reviews. That's all it is on Rotten Tomatoes. The average is 7 out of 10, and 64% of audiences. So they didn't like it as much. They barely give it a fresh tomato. I don't know if he was president. No, he wasn't president quite yet. He was going to be president a year or so after this movie came out. But Dwight Eisenhower loved it. One of his favorite movies, apparently, when he was in office. Really? I guess the wholesome nature of it. Probably the most religious movie we've ever covered. We've covered movies where they've talked about God and religion and that kind of thing. Friday Night Lights, they pray, for example. But not really overtly are movies religious. And this one, I guess like the remake, has religion because you've got literal angels. But also just the fact that they're being bettered by a celestial being, the managers in both cases. Danny Glover must have watched this movie to study for his role because he plays it very similarly. He's so angry, he's not supportive of his team. He punches his own player in the face. In this one, that doesn't happen. The manager's fighting the umpires, not punching, but arguing with the umpires. He's not happy with his team, though, because in the locker room, and no one sees this at least, it's better if you do this privately, he's saying awful things to these guys. God, man. So Guffy's not a supportive manager. Yeah, the team is bad, but... There's a way to be hard on your players and not just make them feel like they're just piles of crap. 
One of the things that's key in Moneyball, when Brad Pitt has the big freakout, when he bashes the stereo with the bat, he does say at the end of that rant, you may not look like a winning ball team, but you are one. And that's yeah. not what happens with Guffey in this. He's just ripping on them and then walking away. And his own players don't like him or trust him probably, including, of course, the pitcher who wins the game at the end of the movie. You look at managing in 2022, I think some people might argue that a lot of the decisions are now taken out of the hands of the managers. And Which is true. Analytics departments. Yeah, it could well be, depending on the franchise. But it's about the bullpen. It's about the bullpen. How do you manage your bullpen in-game? Yeah, and it's like the chess pieces moving. Whereas but they didn't do that back then. They didn't do it back then, exactly. So I think the job of a manager in 1950, 1951 is probably more important when you are losing and how do you pick your players up, get the ship turned around in the right direction again. When you're going well, when you're winning, I'm sure managing in the 1950s was pretty easy. You start your pitcher, you let him throw 150 pitches, your starting lineup is what it is, you don't really use the bench all that much. As I understand it from watching some historic baseball and stuff like that, that seems to be what it is. I think they bunted a lot more and stole a lot more back then. So that may be one thing you that need might be one thing, involved yeah. in giving signs and things like that. So, okay, fine. But I otherwise say what you're saying. Now the game is all about, look at the Rays, for example. Oh, yeah, let's talk about the Blake Snell Blake example, Snow. which we talked about it's while watching this movie. It's been almost two years, but it reminds us about how he was pulled because that's the way the Rays do things. Yeah, but he was mowing lineup. people down. And yet Saul Hellman, played by Bruce Bennett in this film, he should be pulled out, like Tony Danza in the remake. He's done. Why is he still pitching? Well, Danza had not yet hit his pitch count. That's why he 175. Was... <laughs> he, he, that was his pitch count. He hadn't hit it yet. He's throwing 156 <laughs> pitches. He's got to be tired. That's exactly it these days, right? The Blake Snell example, he couldn't face the order a third time. Didn't matter if he'd only thrown 70-odd pitches through six innings or something. you got to pull him, right? Because heaven help you if you face the order a third time through you could argue that it's objectively better the way they do it now because they have statistics to back it up. But from a fan's perspective, it's probably just more annoying. But just from Guffey's perspective, I think that makes him just a flat-out bad manager. So you can understand why the team would just spiral into ineptitude, which is why it's so funny to me. And I think we kind of laughed at this a little bit at the end of the movie. Yeah, we saw it together, by the way. We didn't say that yet. But we watched yeah, our we second did. of the three movies we've watched together, King Richard and now this one. We're on a streak. We start the movie with the Pirates being the lowest of the low. Actually, they aren't yet the lowest of the low. They're 7th out of 8th in the NL, and they fall to 8th a game or two later. But they're just getting smoked, right? And then we have this angelic intervention. We do have to talk about the religiosity of this a little bit. I know you raised it already, but there's some interesting quirks to that. And then they go on a streak, and eventually in the last regular season game, they do manage to squeak into the playoffs. But just prior to that last game, when Guffey's talking to his guardian angel in the cab ride over to the park, the angel says, all right, we've done all we needed to do. This last game's in your hands. You can do it, Guffy. Go get him, boy. And Guffy basically says, what? You can't make me win on my own merits? What's wrong with you? You low down, no good son of a... How dare you do this? This is the lowest thing ever. It's a weird message. That I need my like, PEDs. Yeah, I need somebody to win for me. It was like a very Rudy-esque tone at the end. But I want to win for free kind of thing, right? <laughs> I'm entitled. He went from this angry guy who just saw no joy in life to I'm going to be the nicest guy in the world to sulky McPowderson about the fact that his, his angel refuses to win one game for him. Yeah. That's a very funny turn to me. Well, the biggest name in this movie by far, Janet Lee. she's also the early narrator. Not the whole movie, but we hear her narrating to set things up in the very beginning. Yes. Yar in the outfield is what I said earlier. I was going to call it the mad and the skinny because he's mad all the time. <laughs> that would fit. And she is so thin in this movie. Was she ever eating food? She was very thin. So they're paired off as romantic interest. That made no sense. Which, by the way, the same all. year as the remake came out, I think. Yeah, Miracle on 34th Street, the remake. 
And that made a lot more sense. They made sense together, and then the kid with them, it made sense. It's her daughter, her actual daughter in that movie. I don't know if it's in the original, but definitely in the 1994 one. I oh, bring it up just because I'm thinking about 1994 for the remake. Right. Okay. And about how they're pairing and jamming these things together. There's no love interest in the remake of this movie, Angels in the Outfield. Of course, there is that whole thing in Miracle on 34th remake. And I think it makes sense. This one does not at all. Because let's talk about the score factor. Paul Douglas, who's about 20 years older than her, seems like he could be 40 years older than her. They don't belong together at all. They don't actually seem like they're going to go home and do anything. But they are being paired off in this movie with this adopted kid. This makeshift family. That's why I'm bringing up the Miracle on 34th Street thing. I can see how that makes sense as a makeshift family. Two people are actually related in that group of the three people actually in that film. But these three are not. And they're jammed together by this movie. And it doesn't really make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. And you're right. She is tiny after a weird shoe-related incident. He has to carry Mm -hmm. Janet Lee. He being Guffy has to carry Janet Lee to the cab at the corner. And she says, I'm only 110 pounds. And then he puts her in the car and she says, oh, 110. Oh, okay, maybe 115. And you're sitting there going, no chance. She's like 90, 95 pounds. I don't know what weights are. I can never guess somebody's weights. Like, I can't guess somebody's age. But I don't think she's even close to that much. No, she was a tiny woman in this. As far as the romantic pairing goes, yeah, it made no sense. I don't know why the movie felt it needed it, except that maybe in 1950... It was typical in almost every movie. Exactly. We got to find it somehow. But even if you've got to shoehorn it in... Why pick a 23 or something year old Janet Lee to pair off with this early 40s grizzled older dude? Are they going to find some romantic interest in each other and then it fizzles out and doesn't happen? They basically just get together because it's the only way the courts will allow Guffy to adopt the kid. It's almost like the we accidentally got pregnant so now we're getting married scenario. That's a weird twist for this quote unquote romantic subplot, yeah. right? And I like your Miracle on 34th Street analogy, not just because of the quasi-family in this movie to Miracle on 34th Street is apt, but I think the courtroom climax scene in this movie is yeah. also, to me, very analogous to that. Let's put Santa Claus on trial here about his existence. Which does happen in both versions of that film. Yeah. And by the way, yeah, I think the storyline is almost the exact same as far as the kid blending the guy she likes with her mother. I think the 47 version of Miracle on 34th Street does that, and I know the remake does that. So let's all mix this group together, but also have a courtroom situation going on. And the commissioner is the judge in this case. And I felt similarly confused watching, at least, I don't know if I've ever actually seen the 94 version of Miracle, but certainly when I watched the 47 version, I could never really understand why Santa Claus is being put, or this guy who professes to be Santa Claus has to be put on trial. And I felt even more confused watching. It's for the same reason. They're accusing the person of being insane. But still, a trial is a really bizarre way to go about determining that in a public setting. And in the case of this movie, this sort of ties into the religious aspect of it, of course, because it's very important that everybody be a faithful Christian. So it's a rabbi, a Catholic guy, and a Christian? Is that what it is? No, I took it that he was supposed to be maybe like a biblical scholar or something. In American culture in 1950s, and maybe even more so now, it seems to be very important that you be viewed as a good religious adherent, at least if you're in politics, let's say that. That's very important here. But heaven help you if you're too religious and actually profess to ever actually seeing an angel. Guffy gets into a cab, and he starts having a conversation with the angel. And listen, if you're a cab driver in Pittsburgh in the 50s, you've had plenty of people in the back just muttering to themselves. You don't react like your life is in danger. And in this movie, they played it as if, oh, this guy who was kind of having a conversation and then got out and offered to pay me the fare, the cab driver reacted as if, this is a scary thing. Your money will poison me. Yeah. And then I speak to angels sometimes. I don't know if you ever heard of Kathy Wood. 
but she is extraordinarily famous in investment circles. She controls hundreds of billions of dollars that she invests and people buy the funds and stuff like that. But she has in the media said, basically, yeah, God tells me what's going to do well, what's not. Whatever floats your boat, sure. No one's putting it on trial for it. No one's putting it on trial. And in this case, we're talking about a baseball manager whose team is winning, right. whose players are behind him. Like in the remake. Yeah. Who, Same thing. I might have to fire him, though. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone around him is liking the new Guffy. Everything's sunshine and rainbows. He is a better man. Objectively a better man. And the fact that he just happens to tell people, I speak to angels sometimes, sure. Get the commissioner out here. We have to have a trial. And for some reason, the quote-unquote prosecutor in this trial is going to be the play-by-play announcer from Pittsburgh that's got a real grudge against mm-hmm. Guffy. I've already mentioned a Christmas movie, and of course it's remake for some reason here in April, recording this podcast, but they do compare with the Miracle on 34th Street It was movies. snowing today, so Christmas Briefly it April, was, yeah. We're go. recording this in March. It comes out in April, yeah. But the other one I brought up when we watched the movie was It's a Wonderful Life. The guy especially when we first see Clarence, when George dives in the water and saves Clarence, and then Clarence is telling him, and the, whatever that guy is, the dock worker, whatever you call him, He's an angel and all this stuff. And the way the guy reacts, we all love that movie. At least most people love It's a Wonderful Life. But that performance is, well, Capra told him to do it. But it's so bad and over the top. Better run away. He might infect me with his craziness or something like that. Then again, Clarence disappears when Bert and Ernie are dealing with him at the house that would be the Bailey house. But in this alternate reality, it's not. But that whole thing with Ernie was, I need a drink. Guy does disappear, so that makes a little bit more sense. But they act like the idea of an angel. Calm down. This movie does the same thing. Yeah, and I assume it's largely just a product of the era. We're still, I guess, close enough to silent era acting where everything just had to be big and over the top. I guess in some movies anyway, that kind of perspective on performance hadn't yet been lost. Funny you say that because this is right around the time of Brando and the method acting coming into play, 1951. The year before this was his first movie when he was in The Men. And the year of this movie, Streetcar Named Desire, one of the most influential method performances at that time and probably ever lived this performance versus the kabuki style that silent acting was. We hadn't yet figured out as an industry in Hollywood how to subtly convey some of these things in a way that everybody would understand and they wouldn't be lost on them. And I think one of the things you pointed out to me, and this is just like another indication of how certain acting styles cling on and won't let go. One of the players or the manager's Is it a coach? I can't remember what this guy's role is exactly, but he's on the Pirates and he's talking to Guffy a few times. You mentioned to me at one point, this guy's a well-known film noir actor. And of course, in this movie, he's just in the baseball clubhouse. He's talking to Guffy like, all right, listen up, see? We're going to go there. We're going to win today. All right, see? This is wildly out of place. What's going on here? Yeah, it is the early 50s, so it's not that far from the 40s when that was relatively common. But that was more so a 30s thing, I guess, actually, really, that style of acting. Although Edward G. Robinson and James Cagney, who did talk that way, weren't that far of doing their noir films, I guess, in 1951. Yeah, well, also, we noticed this in this movie. You see this in a lot of movies, I guess, but people will be millimeters away from each other talking. (laughs) Who stands like that? I really don't need to smell every inch of you when we're talking. (laughs) Jerry Seinfeld would have had a field day with the close talk. Bit of a close talker, yeah. (laughs) You talked about the coach, by the way. I don't think this was the character. Maybe it was. Pie Trainer. Another Pirates legend was an advisor and plays a coach in this movie. Oh. And we also see Joe DiMaggio. We see the elderly Ty Cobb, who does not have an accent. I would have thought he would have a southern accent. doesn't really in that one scene. He has a line. Anyway. And then, of course, we do see Bing Crosby, who actually was a part owner of the Pirates at this time. I think he had 15% of the team. So he's golfing and has a scene in this movie because it's about his team. 
Joe DiMaggio's delivery of his line in this movie, by the way, was, was so bad. Not a good actor. It was not good. Bing Crosby just popping out of nowhere, sinking a putt, and then giving a wink to the heavens or something. Thanks for the help on that one, guys. Bizarre little one-off cameo, but it was an interesting piece of trivia to learn that he was a part owner of the mm-hmm. Pirates in this era. Because as soon as he said that, I looked it up, and it was true. Yeah, for about 15 years, right? You said mid-late 40s, just about like something like that. 60s, mm-hmm. 61, something like that, yeah. Well, I mentioned, by the way, the bona fides, and they were pretty good from the Rotten Tomatoes, but this movie was also nominated for two AFI lists. One was the Top 100 Cheers, so most inspirational. And this one, I guess, really? fits. Yeah, okay. This one fits <laughs> even more so. I don't feel that inspired by it. I don't feel that inspired by it either. But the other list is the sports category of the top 100 genres. So we haven't covered one of those in a little while, I don't think. We haven't covered that many overall. There's still plenty of other ones we can do. But this was nominated for that list. So we see top 100 in the sports genre. Well, I think I've told you this before. So they had a show. The AFI did one every single year. They haven't done one in well over 10 years. But they did a show every single year. And the one time it was the top 100 genres. And they broke up 10 different categories. It was fantasy top 10, animation top 10, westerns top 10. And one of them was the sports genre. So Rocky was, I think, two. Raging Bull was number one, right? Bull Durham, I believe, was on that list. We've covered some of them. I can't think of the other ones that actually made the top 10. But they had 50 nominees, and this was one of the 50. I'd have to think about how much I actually liked the movie on the whole. But I think overall it was a better movie than the 94 version of it was, certainly. And I can also certainly appreciate it fitting into some sort of historic nomination of top 50, top 100 in the sports category, whatever. Inspirational, I struggle with. I think we've run into this a few times when we've talked about movies that were most inspirational or something like that. A lot of the time, I don't understand where the inspiration is supposed to come from. In a movie like this, for exactly the reason I talked about earlier, when I mentioned how weird it is to me that the whole crux of the movie is, we can't win on our own. You have to help us. And I understand that ultimately they do win on their own. And that pitcher that's on his last legs and is going to die next year throws a complete game to win. Mm. Tony Dent's the same situation in the remake. Yeah. He's going to die of lung cancer, I guess, is what it is pretty soon. And he does not have an angel with him in that last game. Thinks he does. Yes, and then and the manager lies to him that he does, but he does it on his own. See, that works better to me. I think maybe that's why I struggle with the inspirational element of this versus the remake, even though, like I said, I think that the original is still a better movie overall than the remake. It is. The wings flapping thing we mocked when we did the remake, but I've watched that scene on YouTube a few times since, and it's pretty nice. By that point, Glover, who's a good actor, you like him by that point. Tony Danza does not look like a pitcher, but you like him too. You like young JGL and then JP for that matter. You love JP in that remake. So even though the wing flapping thing is silly, we didn't really buy that so much. It has a more emotional resonance and also the yes. fact that Dan's is going to die of cancer. And I guess maybe that's maybe the same thing with Saul Hellman in this because the head angel tells him he's coming to see us soon. Yeah, he doesn't say why. He just says no. by next year he's going to be playing with our team, implying the heavenly host team or the heavenly choir team, right? Yeah. I don't recall if Glover knows that in the remake. I don't think he did in the remake, did he? Or I don't recall. It would make sense why he let him pitch the whole game rather than, I got to take him out when it's three to two and the bottom of the, or top of the ninth with a one run lead and bases loaded. If you're going to let him go this long, let him pitch the rest <laughs> throw, of the game. Let him throw one more pitch, see what happens. It's about time. Yeah. But in this film, you've got the knowledge that this guy is dead, so he wants to give him that one last chance. I guess he would say to himself or Jennifer when they're talking in the offseason, how do you feel about this now? Because she is a writer. She would know a little bit about the situation. Maybe she would talk to him off the record, I guess, because she's compromised as a writer. Oh, yeah. Do you have regrets about leaving him in and then they lost the game? If they had, he'd probably say no. If he really has yeah. changed, he'd say no because this meant more to him to have the chance to win. He'd be disappointed he lost. But if he's going to die anyway, at least he went out in a shield. 
for me the flaw though is that the movie undercut itself if they had just let Guffy go to that final game we're in the ninth inning we're in a, a sticky situation and he's faced with this decision and he turns to his heavenly guardian or whatever and says what do I do the angel just says hey man we haven't been here the whole game we're not playing this one it's all you and then Guffy makes that decision and says I'm leaving him in and he wins to me that would have been inspirational that would have been sweet that would have been nice in the same way that Danza thinking he has angelic help guts through it and he gets the job done and he's successful and to me that's at least a little inspirational that's not the case here because we already know that Guffy going to the park was like a whiny baby about effectively Mm -hmm. not being able to cheat and the pitcher in that game whose name I forget Saul Hellman Saul Hellman yeah none of these players had any direct knowledge of these angels they're all peripherally aware of it because of the newspaper articles going around and stuff like that but it's not like Saul's turning to Guffy and saying is my angel here is my angel here None of them know about that. They just think basically they're going out to play another game, essentially. Yeah, the remake, it's really clear they know. Yeah, exactly. So I just didn't feel the same kind of inspiration, I guess. Bruce Bennett, who does play Saul, was in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. He's Cody. So if you've seen that movie, that is a great film. One of the great, great films of all time. That word fits. So he's the guy that stumbles across the three of them and then says, either you kill me, you make me a partner, or I forget the third thing is, and then you realize, he's right. What do they do? Either they kill him or they let him be part of the thing because he might rat them out. And then something happens and he gets killed anyway. Spoiler alert, too late. (laughs) Anyway, that's who plays him. Doesn't have a lot of dialogue in this movie, not nearly as much as Danza does, because Danza's his surrogate in the remake. The players aren't really a factor in this movie. The depiction of the sport is supposed to be silly. It's not nearly as crazy as it is in the remake, where Matthew McConaughey flies 40 feet in the air, and everyone would say, that's not literally possible. The situation where Adrian Brody hits a ball that I think 17 errors are made on that ball. It's just ricocheting off everybody. Why they don't believe that the kid in the remake, well, the kid in this movie too, but why the kid and then in this one it's hearing angels. Glover's character is never involved with the angels in the remake. But why people are hearing or seeing or whatever angels in this movie or the remake, when they see these crazy things happening, or even the situation you mentioned where the ball hangs up there for 30 seconds. Yeah. I don't believe in angels. I'm not religious. I know you're not religious either. But if something like that happened, I might have to question my beliefs. Or at least question, how did that happen? Let's figure it out. Is it angels? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Especially in the remake when it's repeated. And I guess it is in this movie too, but we don't really see it depicted. It's more implied. And it sounds like it's more, the guy stretched an extra foot. And it's for comedy's sake in both movies, especially the remake. Because it's Disney in the remake. This is MGM. That's another thing. Disney will be more goofy. We've seen some bad movies Disney's made. (laughs) They're willing. Well, Mighty Ducks too, for one thing. Again, 1994, same year as the Miracle on 34th Street remake and the same year as the Angel Nailfield remake. But it sounds like they're making relatively believable crazy plays in this movie when the angels are helping. There's precious little that's happening on screen that you look at it in the same way you look at the 94 movie where stuff is just happening that's physically impossible. To a certain degree, that's kind of to this movie's credit because it's one of those elements of subtlety. And we already talked about elements of this movie, whether it's acting or otherwise, that are like over the top and don't make sense this might be an area where subtlety actually worked against the movie a little bit because you would want to see maybe a little bit more proof if you're going to be a movie that's going to be about angels and focusing so prominently on that as a belief ha i have it for you there's a line of contact yeah what's that it might be the judge from a few good men forget the actor who plays him anyway he says to jodie foster after what happens to her towards the end of that movie yeah are we supposed to take this on faith yeah, we're supposed to, as an audience, watching this version of this movie, take it on faith this stuff is happening, because they don't show it to us, almost at all. 
I would agree with you, except that the movie also makes this explicit point to put Guffy on trial for his belief and essentially judge him for it. The comment I made to you at the time was like the Mueller report, right? Because now Guffy's going to say, I was exonerated. Well, no, he wasn't exonerated. The commissioner who was standing as the judge on this... Who sees a feather float down and then realizes, oh, I better keep my mouth shut because now I'm seeing things. Yeah, now I'm seeing things. So How is that proof? So he basically <laughs> just says, okay, well, there's no basis for this. Case dismissed. Case dismissed. <laughs> I don't even know what language to use because this is hotel room and baseball. It's not a courtroom, but case dismissed. Nobody ever said, Guffy, we believe you. There's angels. Well, nobody within the trial anyway. I think the Janet Lee character has come around to it mostly because of Bridget. But nobody in the courtroom does. Even the three, the rabbi, the priest, and who we think is maybe like a religious scholar or something like that, Mm -hmm. they cite biblical verse, and they don't even really cite something that supports the existence of angels. The quasi-villain in this, right? The play-by-play announcer is acting as the prosecutor in the courtroom drama who has it out for Guffy because Guffy, when he was still behaving badly, got this guy fired from his day-to-day gig calling Pittsburgh games. He asks these religious professionals... Okay, well, you know the kind of man Guffy is. He was a real piece of work. He was swearing all the time. He was getting in fights. He was a terrible person. Why would angels help him? They cite some verse that I'm not terribly familiar with, but to paraphrase it, it's basically, okay, well, if a shepherd is 100 sheep and 99 of them are behaving properly, but one of them wanders off, who's going to get That's the attention That's why the shepherd, the shepherd is there in the first place, I yeah. guess. Yeah, so the shepherd's going to go help the wayward sheep. And so he's making the analogy, okay, well, Guffy's the wayward sheep, so the angels are helping him. He never says there's angels, or he never says Guffy sees angels and he's right. He's just saying, if there's angels, they would be helping a wayward son because that's their role. Right. I appreciate the movie wants us to take it on faith, but I feel like, okay, you're going to go through all the trouble of setting up this courtroom scene, this weird kangaroo trial. At least at the end of it, have something akin to, I think, what you're going for in the Miracle on 34th Street thing, where you never really explicitly say this guy's Santa Claus, but there's enough direct evidence piled up you can see everyone in the courtroom's like, yeah, this guy's Santa Claus. All right. I forget what happens in the original, but in the remake, I think it might be both movies, but the remake for sure, it's all about here's a bill of American currency that says, in God we trust. So if we can trust on our official currency, a celestial being that we're never going to see, why can't we do the same thing with this maybe celestial being who we currently can see right in front of us? That would have been a great thing to pull out here. In God we trust. I see angels. You going to trust? No? What kind of American are you? Paul Douglas does play the main character, Guffy McGovern, who has steak rage. <laughs> he's okay, always eating steak, and he's always mad, at least the first few minutes. I guess he does improve that, and then he has to fight it back. But then it sounds like by the end of the movie, he's not going to be somebody who flies off the handle so easily in future games. Except I do have a logic on this. I just, what happens next with Bev? So what happens next with this team? Next year, the Angels aren't helping anymore, or even in the World Series. We said in the playoffs. They do make the postseason, but back then, that was, you go to the World Series directly. Right. When the Angels aren't helping them, and they probably get waxed by the American League team, likely the Yankees in that time frame. How's he going to be long-term? What's going to happen next? Well, is he going to regress and be a swearer again? Although, if he's got the love of a good woman, his daughter, really, and then his actual adopted daughter, who's eight, but Janet Lee could be his daughter. If he's got all those things in his life and he's not lonely, this is a character much like Rocky, spends a lot of time alone yeah. on the train, eaten by himself. He doesn't have to mingle with his players. Not every manager is good at that kind of thing. But this guy's portrayed as somebody who's always alone until the angel just... I think randomly starts talking to him when he's out on the field, just walking around, and then won't leave him alone. Not constantly, but I don't think he calls on angels, right? Because that's what happens in the remake. It's Joseph Gordon-Levitt saying, help, I want to be with my dad, and it's only if the angels win the pennant. 
So he's literally appealing to a higher power, but I don't think Guffy doesn't like that. They just volunteer their help. No, Bridget is supposed to be praying on behalf of the pirates. But when this all started, we didn't know Bridget then. That is a weird scripting choice here. And incidentally, just before I talk about that, you can make the argument that this is inspirational from like a human development. Look at Guffy's become a better man. He has, that's true. So I I just wonder if it's going to last. And that's a valid question. But I think if you looked at his progression from start to finish in the movie, you can make the argument that it's an inspirational movie from that perspective, maybe. So, okay, I concede that placement on the inspirational top 100 list, whatever, from that perspective. Nominated, only nominated. Or nominated, yeah. But from who's praying for the help that Guffy ultimately gets, that was confusing at first. Because you're right, we get no introduction to any of this happening until the voice mm-hmm. speaking to him. Like you said, he was wandering the diamond after the game was over one day in Boston, I think they said, right? It was the Boston Braves Stadium, I think he said. It was the at. appropriate, too. Boston's a pretty religious town. Yeah. And then it's only like 15 or 20 minutes later that we first meet Bridget. And then she says to Guffy after she goes to the first Pittsburgh game where she says she's seeing angels, and that gets printed in the newspaper by Janet Lee. Guffy reads the article, goes, finds Bridget, and then we find out that she says, oh, no, I've been praying for you for so long because your team has sucked and you seem like you need help. I think the implication is supposed to be that this has been going on on her behalf long before we meet her in the movie, and that's really why the angels actually help Guffy out. Kid does a good job. Donna Corcoran plays... Bridget. It's her debut. She was eight when they shot the movie. I think she's supposed to be eight. Didn't act a lot beyond this, but she's pretty good for a kid actor. I think I also said to you during this, and this is more the boys, but through so much of Hollywood and around this point, I think even still, kids would, nah, I'm not trying to be young Jimmy Cagney, yeah, wise guy, that kind of thing. Now, this is a girl. She probably wouldn't do that, but she's actually a pretty natural and believable actress in this film. It's a pretty good role. She's only in about half of it. Paul Douglas, actually, if you talk about chemistry, the best chemistry in the whole movie for him is with her way more than he has with Janet Lee. He softens. You can see it, that he likes her. He wants to be around her. Adopting her, we talked about it in the first Angels Nailfield podcast, the 1994 one. How did this guy get a kid and then it's actually two adopted kids? We don't know if he has a wife when he has this history of beating up people on the field. <laughs> Paul Douglas's character in this isn't as bad as that, but he's also a single man. Yeah. He does have a history of anger. He's been scandalized for weeks or months with this whole thing about he's insane. He sees angels. He gets to adopt a kid, even with now a woman in his life. I feel like the Paul Douglas character and the girl have good chemistry, and they have some sweet moments together in this movie. It's one of the things that works the best, frankly, is those moments together. Early on, he explicitly says he likes being alone. He lives in this one-bedroom, small apartment by himself, doesn't really have any friends anymore, seems to be content that way. Doesn't even have olive oil. Not sorghum. What the heck was that oil? It was oh, like, I looked it up too. I forget what it was, but it's for his glove to soften his glove. Yeah, and that's what like, she puts in the food. It was rendered cow's feet and it was mm. called something strange. But yeah, he doesn't even have cooking basics, oil. He's going out for steaks stuff. all the time. And covering them in ketchup. Yeah. I think in the movie they say this is the best steakhouse in town. It comes to his table and he just douses it in ketchup. To the movie's credit, Janet Lee does tell him. Don't put so much ketchup on it. Not Don't put any ketchup on steak. And I will, to my dying breath, say that you do not put ketchup on a good cut of well-cooked beef. I don't think I've ever even done with bad steak. Barbecue sauce, I might have done that. Dip it in it. But yeah, if you have like a nice T-bone, you also dose it not in ketchup. ketchup so no. I think part of the reason why the chemistry between Janet Lee and Paul Douglas just doesn't work is it's not believable. We have all these meet cute movies and moments that we're just conditioned to accept now because ever since whatever rom-coms becoming a thing in the 80s, I guess, maybe, or maybe early 90s, 
disparate personalities meet in this cute way and they fall in love. Great. They don't really even have that in this, though. No, they're they just don't. two people who are wildly different in age, wildly different in background, wildly different in world outlook, briefly forced together because she, as a woman's issues columnist with the paper, is assigned to cover the pirates to get the woman's perspective. Okay, whatever. I'm not sure how believable that is in 1951. So she meets Guffy, and yeah, I get that they both like this kid. But again, there's no chemistry there, and they're 23 years apart in age. When she dumps him because it doesn't work, he's going to fly off the handle, and the angels will not be there to save him. (laughs) This is an uninspirational movie, long-term, in my fantasy booking, if you will, a year later. 1952 (laughs) Pirates, when they're not good, and he's lost his lady, and maybe even lost the adopted kid, he really loses it. Well, Janet Lee, if I didn't say it already, of course, we know from Psycho, probably the most famous role she ever had, but also Manchurian Candidate a couple years after that. That's a great movie. The remake wasn't very good. The original was outstanding. I saw it again recently. I haven't seen it in quite a few years. Bev and I covered that in Psycho and Touch of Evil for the Top Runner Project, my other podcast, and she's pretty good in all of them. Paul Douglas mostly did noir films. Panic in the Streets is a pretty good movie, which I think was before this film. And then Keenan Wynn, who's, I think, third build. Yes, he is. Dr. Strangelove. As funny as Peter Sellers is in that whole film, he is outstanding as Colonel Bat Guano. Shoot the lock off that! Get the change out of the Coke machine! That's what the bullets are for! But that's private property. <laughs> His deadpanning. Man, he's funny in that film. His role is not that great in this film. He's the ranch wilder, effectively. He's the bad guy. The they both punch each other. He punches Paul Douglas in the restaurant, and then Paul Douglas punches him at the hearing. So they yes. were even that way. McKinnon wins also in a 1970s basketball movie called Coach. Never heard of it. Don't know if we'll cover it, but I'm looking for sports movies whenever I talk about what other people have done, and I don't think I see anything else with anybody other than him being in Coach. Although Lewis Stone, who does play the commissioner in that one scene, Bev and I just recently covered a movie of his on the Top and Under Project, Grand Hotel. He's the guy who says that line I like so much, which is, People come, people go, nothing much happens, even though in the movie, a lot of things have happened, including people getting killed, and yeah, so it's a big storyline. And then James Whitmore is the voice of the head angel, and he was Brooks in Shawshank Redemption. We didn't say the director's name until right now, and the producer for that matter, Clarence Brown, nominated for six Oscars, and one of them was for National Velvet, which is the Elizabeth Taylor, Mickey Rooney horse racing movie in the 40s, about seven years before this. That was on the sports list. That was, I think, eighth or something on the sports list, yeah. The writers Dorothy Kingsley and George Wells. Kingsley wrote Kiss Me Kate, and then Wells wrote a movie we probably will have to cover one of these days, a musical. It'd be our first, Ooh. if we do it, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, which I think was before Angels in the Outfield. Yeah, I think that fits. And then we already said the depiction of the sport is not very good. It's not supposed to be. But even when we see a guy it's just ground bad. to third, well, we see a guy ground to third, and you think, that is the weakest swing, and it looks like a real player. <laughs> yeah. There's real action in this movie plenty of times. Yes. Ralph Kiner. One of the most prolific Pirates home run hitters of all time. He hits a home run. We see it in the game. I don't think we see it go over the fence, but he has a swing that it says online it was actually a home run. But when that guy grounds to third in the early footage, it just looks like, has this guy ever touched a bat before? And I think maybe it's real footage. Maybe it's not. But I guess the idea is they're just that bad. The guy can barely even, maybe it's the pitcher. He barely even gets the ball to third base. I thought the action was all right. And you can tell some of his real footage. We could see very clearly where it cuts to shots of Guffy in post or something they put him up against a shot of some people in the stands and stuff like that the game action was okay i think it was worse at the beginning when they were meant to be bad we've seen other movies the 94 angels would be an example but there's certainly other movies where we see the sport being played intentionally badly because either the team is meant to be bad or in some cases it's just kids playing it and in those circumstances 
you can have the sport being played badly, but the depiction is still good, if that makes sense, because they're supposed to be bad. Yeah. In this case, they're supposed to be bad, but the depiction still seemed bad because the batter didn't even look like he was trying to swing to hit the ball. Like you said, it was the laziest little thing. Dink. I grounded it to third. It wasn't even a bunt. I wasn't really sure. What it's it like when a do. coach will hit little ground balls to third baseman in yes. warm up. Yes, exactly. Just to that, get him to catch the ball and throw to first base. That's a great example. To get of what loose, it looks like yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, it was just that like bad. A little nothing swing. Yeah. yeah. We already said you can't score this movie, and it's not intended for that reason anyway. But no romantic heat between Douglas and I Lee. I don't know, man. That mustache on Keenan Wynn. It was greased to within. Plus for a stash, then. Okay, good. All right, good. I'd say it's a score, pretty generous, five and a half out of ten, maybe a six. The movie's watchable, but I'm not going to watch it again. I've seen it twice. The first time was a long time ago. I think I'd almost rather watch that stupid remake than this, though. I think I enjoyed it more, even though it's a worse film. I think this has more sweetness to it, mostly because of the relationship between Guffy and Bridget. The other elements of it are okay to middling. Whereas the 94 thing is just pure slapstick, essentially. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of heart to it here and there, but mostly it's pure slapstick. I've said already, I think the original was a better constructed movie, but I think you can make the argument either one is a more watchable movie, depending on whether you want comedy or you want something that's a little bit more heartwarming. What would you give this first score? Yeah, maybe five and a half, six as well. I'm not upset that we watched it. I was happy to see it. And I thought it was fine, but I wouldn't go out of my way to watch it again yeah. anytime soon. So our oldest ever movie and our first black and white movie. I double-checked that. We've never done a black and white film before. Really? Yeah. I would have sworn we did. Our previously oldest movie was Enter the Dragon. The only movie we covered before this that actually predated either of us. Say the line, Ryan. Say the line, Ryan. We need emotional content. <laughs> Still the greatest single line in well, the way any he movie says we've it, covered. The dialogue isn't that great, but the way he says it is so great. Bruce Lee. Okay, baseball is back, baby. Major League season is a week old as of today when we released this podcast. It should be a memorable year in general after the lockout that lasted all those months. They finally figured it out. We will have a full season, a lot of doubleheaders, and I guess some of the off days will probably not be off days, but they're going to get all the games in, they think, anyway. I'm sure there'll be some rainouts, and maybe they'll not get them all in, but they're going to try. But especially this year could be memorable because our hometown Blue Jays are looking like a real World Series contender. Yeah, baby. The Pirates are not. (laughs) Yeah, not so much. Okay, in two weeks, we'll be as close as we'll get to the 2022 Kentucky Derby, which is on May the 7th. So for just the second time ever, we'll talk about horse racing. Our other horsey flick was Seabiscuit, which was on the cheers list, incidentally, as was Rudy. So they made the top 100 cheers list. Stupid Rudy. And we know Rocky did. That's not surprising. Yeah. But the second horse racing movie we'll ever do is Secretariat. So Seabiscuit, Secretariat. We're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. All of our 101 episodes are available online to download through all the various podcast places. And you can also email us at scoring at movies, not at scoring at movies, scoring at the movies at gmail.com. If you put an at in front of it, you're not going to send an email to us. Well, Guffy, your team is bound to stink once the angels go away and your heart can only take so much yelling. So please, for the love of your new family, take her easy.